I pray you'd speak to us now and we would continue to worship you as we open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Wasn't that good? Yeah. It's awesome. Thank you, guys. Hey, welcome to uh, Sierra Bible Church. If by chance you're new here and uh, I haven't had the opportunity to say hi to you or to get to know you, my name is Jesse, and uh, for the most part, I have the blessed opportunity to do uh, quite a bit of the preaching here at Sierra Bible. And just on behalf of the staff and, and volunteers and those that love our church, uh, we're glad that you're here. In fact, if you are new, we want to get to know you. Uh, best way to do that, step outside at the info booth um, to my right. We got a free gift uh, for you, and, and uh, we're praying for you. We are a church that, that we, we want to see visitors come. We want to see people who are questioning what Christianity is come uh, to our church to learn about Jesus and uh, to ask questions about the Bible and, and why we believe in it and, and who is this guy Jesus and all of that. And so if that's you, if you're somebody that uh, is seeking who Jesus is, I just want you to know you're welcome here. Uh, we love having you and we're praying for you in hopes that you would find out a little bit more of who Jesus is. Uh, and <clears throat> a couple of things of announcements before we get into the word. One is, uh, obviously, it is Christmas season and we are in our Advent series. Advent is just kind of a, a fancy word for preparing for Christmas uh, and, and prepping for Christmas Day, as well as our Christmas Eve services. We've got two Christmas Eve services this year, one at 5 p.m., one at 7 p.m. I uh, want to invite you to come, but also those of you uh, who are, are here on a regular basis, your family, and, and uh, I know you, you know me, and we enjoy each other, please invite someone. Invite your neighbor, invite uh, a coworker, invite a relative, invite as many people as you can. I think you would be shocked at how many people would actually come to Christmas Eve who normally never come to church. Uh, and so just want to encourage you to, to do your part uh, in getting more people here that they could hear the good news of who Jesus is. And, and that is a traditional service. We have candlelight uh, service uh, during that time. We sing some songs, a great message on uh, who Jesus is. So uh, two services on Christmas Eve. And then Doug Brown, one of our elders, on Christmas Day at 9.30 a.m., he does kind of a nice little intimate, beautiful service uh, here in the sanctuary. And so if you want to come on Christmas Day, if that's kind of your thing, uh, we want to invite you to come to that as well. And then um, a couple uh, other things. One is year-end giving. Uh, this is the time of year where some of you are thinking about your, uh, your taxes. You've got to make sure you get your last gifts in before uh, December 31st. And then uh, last week, one of our elders mentioned to you the way that we bless our staff during the Christmas season. There's about eight of us on staff here. A uh, couple are part-time. Uh, but we bless them by uh, basically based off of you, what you decide to give uh, during that time that is marked especially for the staff. And so we would say this is kind of above and beyond your general uh, giving or tithes, that if you want to bless the staff at Christmas time to give them a little, uh, a few extra bucks in their pocket, just mark that on your, um, your envelope or on your check or online. You can give online. Uh, there's a tab for that there as well. And then, um, and then also in the bookstore is a great uh, opportunity for you to buy some good solid uh, Christmas gifts. We've got children's Bibles, um, emblems of the infinite king were sold out of those so i mentioned those last week we're getting more in this week because uh it, we we want to help you with your christmas shopping to get some good stuff and, and then it, it the christmas uh or i'm sorry because the bookstore will be open on christmas eve for those of you last minute shoppers we kind of make a joke every year there's only two places you can shop on christmas eve uh the uh, sierra bible church bookstore or 7-eleven and um i don't think you want to give uh slurpees to someone at christmas but you can give a bible so um, and, <clears throat> yeah, let me go back to this here. Um, Luke chapter one. If you have a Bible this morning, please turn to Luke chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and one of the ushers will uh, be glad to hand you um, a Bible that you can use. So just keep your hand up and we'll be in Luke chapter one. And um, we're going to dive in here. Title of the message this morning is um, Christmas Promises. We'll get to that. We're going to build up to, to that title. It's going to take a little bit of time to get to those promises that I'm going to preach on uh, this morning. Um, but if you have uh, the ability to do so, we have an, uh, a tradition here. We like God's Word quite a bit. In fact, we love God's Word. We want to honor it while we read it. Would you please stand with me as we read from Luke chapter 1? Stephan, if you can hit that timer for me, it would be great. Chapter 1, verse 1. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, 
just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time, some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty um, uh, concerning the things that have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all of the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving his priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah was troubled and he saw him and fear fell upon him, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring to you this good news. And behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which be, will be fulfilled in their time. This is the word of the Lord, and the church said, Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so, let's do a little, um, little backdrop so we can understand the context of what has occurred here. Um, first of all, Luke, Luke breaks a 400-year darkness. If you remember, Malachi is kind of the last prophet. So in, in the past, God uh, would speak to his people, uh, usually in a miraculous way, whether it was by a, a pillar uh, of, of smoke in, in the day or a, a big fire at night. That's how he led the people out of Israel. Or, or whether he spoke through uh, a burning bush, bush, as he did with Moses, or whether he uh, spoke through a mighty prophet, uh, like Isaiah or, or maybe Jeremiah, or whether he spoke through one of the judges in the book of Judges, God was constantly speaking to his people. He was constantly in contact with his people, leading them, guiding them, calling them to repentance. And then in Malachi, it all stops. And once, once Malachi is written, between Malachi and Luke, there is a 400 year, 400 years of silence. Now, I don't know if you've ever struggled with hearing from God, but imagine having this tight-knit, close relationship with your Savior, with your God, the one that you worship, and then not to hear anything, anything at all, other than maybe rumor of God speaking. And then after 400 years comes this moment that Luke writes about. Now let's talk about Luke for a moment. Luke was a physician. He was also known as a historian, later a theologian, and then later a pastor. Luke was a Gentile. Uh, if you ever wondered what, what a skeptic would write about God, Luke would be that skeptic, an intelligent skeptic. If you ever wondered what a scientific mind would write about God, uh, Luke would be that book. Luke was a, uh, a Gentile. He was a non-Christian at one point in time. He ends up becoming a Christian, and, and now he's writing this book. And just so you know, Luke, Luke is one of the longest books in the entire uh, New Testament. Along with Acts, which he also wrote, it accounts for more than one quarter of the New Testament. It also gives us a, a big picture of the New Testament. His writings cover about six and a half decades, about 60 plus years. And Luke covers these things. And because he's a doctor, because he's a scientific-minded man, he tells us in the book that after hearing these things, following them for quite a while, he says, he says, I've heard the stories. He tells us, not only have I heard the stories, I've actually sat down with the witnesses of these stories because he was still alive. 
Uh, and, and so were the witnesses, because he, he had the time to write about them. He says, so I'm giving you an orderly account. He, he's taken all of the different writings, all of the different messages he's received, all of the different eyewitness accounts that he has heard of, and he is compiling them into this one book that people would believe that Christmas is true, that people would believe the gospel is true. Uh, and so if you're here and you're, you're wondering why would I believe these kind of things? Luke is saying, let me tell you why you should believe them. In fact, uh, like I said, Luke, Luke actually talks about, even though he's a physician, and he's a logically minded man, he has more of the supernatural events of Jesus than any other gospel in the Bible. And he talks about them and he writes about them that we would believe. And then he writes particularly, if you notice, he says, oh dear Theophilus. He's writing to this person by the name of Theophilus. There's some debate about who this Theophilus is. Some believe it was another uh, Gentile who held a distinguished position uh, that he's writing to a particular person. He mentions it in Acts as well, the word Theophilus. The word Theophilus literally means lover of God. So some debate and state that, that it's, actually, it's actually to anybody who loves God. This is a book that's written to anybody who would love God. Some believe that the word Theophilus was written as an alias for persecuted Christians or a code name for Christians meeting together. Either way, he's writing to us. He's writing to the, the, the individual that, that believes in Jesus, that their faith would be strengthened in the gospel, but that others who don't know Jesus would believe in Jesus. He's letting us know that the story of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus is not legend, but fact. And he says, these things, if you note, he says, these things have been delivered to me. The word delivered is the word paradosis. Uh, it's a word that was used uh, in, in this day where someone would pass on facts by oral tradition. Uh, and that th there was this before, you know, the, the printing press and the ability to write and the ability to have books and to produce all kinds of content and material. Uh, there was a tradition, and it, was, it, was, it required you to be astute. It, it required you to be intellectual. It required you to know what you were doing. You would take the facts and pass them down verbally and deliver them to the next person and deliver them to the next person. And this is what Luke is saying. These things have, have been carefully given to me as reality. Now, I want you to know something about Christianity. You never start a religion the way Christianity was started. You just don't do it. It's one of the main reasons why you should believe in Christianity. First of all, uh, no one says, my Savior, my, my God that I worshipped, died. Like, this is, this is our Messiah. You see him suffering on the cross. Okay, no one says that. In addition to that, the stories, the eyewitnesses tell us that the, the star, which we have here, which, by the way, if you turn the lights out in here, that star glows in the dark. It's pretty cool, but side note. Um, the star that appeared, it first appeared to shepherds. Now, you and I, we, we look at the shepherds and we think, well, well here they are. They're men in the fields. They're, they're looking at the stars. Well, the shepherds in Jesus' day were the dregs of society. They were the lowlifes. So the gospel, if you will, the message that the Messiah has come, comes to the dregs of society uh, originally, initially. And the Savior, he's not even born in a throne. He's not born uh, in a beautiful place. He's born in a stable. He's born in a feed trough. Now, if you fast forward in the gospel, you know that the very first people who ever showed up uh, to the resurrection were women. And the first ones to give the testimony that Jesus was resurrected from the dead were women. Now, for you and I today, we, we don't think much of that. But in Jesus' day, historically, we know it to be true. Though it would be controversial today, in Jesus' day, a woman's testimony was not considered true unless, unless it was bolstered by a male's testimony. But that's not what we have. We have a gospel presentation of good news unto salvation to the lowest of the society, to those who are considered minorities, and this is how the kingdom is born. And so Luke is saying, I want you to know these things as fact that you would believe in them because people have actually seen them to be true. Uh, in fact, place before you uh, this piece of scripture this morning as evidence of what Luke is saying to bolster it. 1 Corinthians 15.1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. Here's that word. You've heard this. It was passed down to you, and, and it's, it's what you stand in. 
and by which you are being saved, which is a beautiful language of our sanctification. We're still growing in Christ. We're not in heaven yet. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you, I passed on to you as first importance what I received. Now, this Christmas time, if you're ever wondering how do I present the gospel to somebody for the first time, here is your passage. Here is the gospel in a nutshell. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with what? Scripture. So he backs it up with the word of God. He's going to say this twice here. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day accordance with the Scriptures. And now listen here, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, that's the other disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, even though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. Okay, so here's the evidence. He says, okay, this is an addition to Luke and what Luke's giving us to believe that he has seen these things, he's heard these things, these things are true. He says, after Jesus died, he was placed in a grave. A big stone was shoved there to lock him in. He is resurrected from the dead. He appears to Peter. He appears to the disciples. We know he appeared to the women first. I just mentioned that. And he says, now he also appeared to an audience of 500. 500 people saw him at one time. Many of them are still here today to testify this to be true. Now, if you were in a court and someone said, sir, uh, did you witness the murder? And 500 people said, yeah, we witnessed it. Would you be convinced? Yes, as Wayne would say, we'll do. This is yes, right? This is no, or this, or this. I don't know. I'm not paying attention. <laughs> um, the answer would be most likely you would believe, and the accounts that are mentioned are amazing. C.S. Lewis actually has a wonderful quote in regards to the Gospels and the writings, specifically the writings of the Gospels, and why we should believe them to be true. Listen to what he says. He says, "I've been reading poems. Remember, C.S. Lewis was once a huge skeptic of Christianity." and did not believe it to be true. I've been reading poems, romances, vision, literature, legends, and myths all my life, and I know what they're like, and I know none of them are like this. Of the gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, he's saying either this is reporting, somebody's reporting the details, the accounts, as history, or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic, realistic narrative. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned how to read. He says, listen, listen. He says, the technique, the techniques that are used to write the gospel are unprecedented up until our modern age. They just don't exist. He says, so, so C.S. Lewis, who's a super intelligent guy, he's smarter than you and I. Okay, he, he just is. He says, listen, either this is reportage, either someone saw this and they wrote it down, or somebody existed that no one's ever known about who knows how to write these things in a way that no one knows how to write, them, write about before. And, and if you don't see that, he says, well, then you're illiterate. <laughs> you just don't know how to read. That's what he says, uh, which, which I think is phenomenal. He's saying, he's saying this. This is what C.S. Lewis is saying. There's no way, if you read the Gospels and the way they were intended to be read, there's no way you can walk away from them and say they're just fables. You have to walk away and say it's absolutely true. And if it's absolutely true, now we have a God that, that we must worship and that we must long for and run after. Or Keller Keller says it this way, don't believe the gospel because it'll meet your needs, though it will. Don't believe the gospel because it'll give you a personal relationship with God, though it does. Believe the gospel because it's true. If the story of Jesus isn't true, it'll be of no help to you. It might be touching, it might be exciting, it might be moving, but if it's not true, it won't help you. So this is Luke's entire entire thesis in the beginning of this book. I want you to know the historical facts to be true, that you would believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would be saved for all eternity. These are facts. And then the, the first details of the birth of the Messiah we get are the details of the birth of John the Baptist. So this is kind of an interesting thing. I'm talking about the Christmas message 
by way of the birth, not of Jesus, but by way of the birth of John the Baptist first. That's how Luke gives it to us. And we'll talk about how we prepare uh, for the Advent season and Christmas season through, through these individuals in the text here. First of all, uh, he mentioned something factually for us, historically for us, so we know we can actually go back and look and see what was happening at the time of the birth of John the Baptist at the time of the birth of Jesus. He mentions the name Herod, something you can circle. He's, king, he's the king of Judea. Herod is this, was this king uh, that, that was really, he was kind of bipolar in, in a negative sense. Uh, in the negative sense in that, in that he, he, wanted, he wanted to be close to his Jewish audience. He was trying to win over the Jews. In fact, he gave them a, a particular kind of tax exemption he even married a Jewish woman to, to earn favor of the Jews. But on the other end, he was angry and he was jealous. Uh, in fact, he was so worried about losing his throne, he murdered his wife and he murdered all of his sons. And then if you know, when Jesus was born and he heard that there was one born in Bethlehem and that he would be the king of the Jews, uh, we know that Herod went out that, uh, by decree that every Every firstborn in the area would be murdered and slaughtered on an ugly, horrific night. It was said of Herod uh, that it would be better to be Herod's pig than to be his son. And this is a contrast for us as we read this. The contrast of an evil, wicked, human king with the birth of a perfect, vulnerable, baby king that would be our Messiah. And so he sets this up and he introduces us that during this time comes a man by the name of Zacharias. And Zacharias was a priest. We're told that he was a faithful priest. Uh, Zacharias was actually uh, a priest in this, in this day, uh, in this time. Uh, he was one of thousands. One of thousands. I, I, the best way to look at it is, is uh, there would be priests in every little village in every little area. And their job as priest would be much like my job as a pastor to a certain degree. And that the job of the priest was to represent the presence of God, to teach that which is in Scripture, to have certain local duties in the church. Uh, but the reality of what Zacharias was doing in his village, that he was one of thousands, is he would preach uh, and teach and minister to and love people in obscurity. Uh, it's no different really than in some ways uh, what's happening here in our church. Like in, in our day and age, we have been exposed to the megachurch pastor. We've all heard their names. We all know who they are. Uh, you, you've heard them speak. You, you've read their books. Uh, that would be, you know, a big church. And then throughout our, our whole nation, by God's grace, there are thousands of churches just like ours with faithful preachers that will die in obscurity. That's my goal, <laughs> to die in obscurity. But, they, but nonetheless, he's, he's one of those guys. He's in a small village in Judah, and he's being faithful. He's offering sacrifices on behalf of God's people. And as a priest, he was required to marry a virgin Israelite. And he does. He marries Elizabeth. We're told about Elizabeth in the text that Elizabeth uh, was the daughter of Aaron, which meant that all, because, because of Aaron and the lineage of Aaron, all of the males within the lineage of Aaron were priests, which means Elizabeth grew up around priests. It's, it's like a, a pastor's daughter marrying a pastor. I know, shocker, right? And, and these two individuals will become the perfect pair to raise the great man that is known as John the Baptist. And this is kind of what this text is ultimately about. And their hearts are prepped and ready for the coming Messiah. How so? Well, first of all, note in verse 6, they were righteous before God. Now, now this, is, this is their overall integrity. This is their character. They're, they're righteous. They're right standing before God. And the reason they were right standing before God is because they had faith in God. Uh, and now, you might say this. This is where I want you just to make the connection, okay? Because we're going to talk about the priesthood a little bit throughout this message. And I don't want the priesthood to feel distant to you. Because uh, it, it might work out like this. You say, you know what? I'm not Zacharias. I'm not a Jewish priest. I've, I've never made sacrifices. I've never made prayers on behalf of anyone. Uh, and if you make the connection to modern pastors, you might say, I'm not a pastor. Okay? 
Uh, now, the Bible has something to say about that. Did you know that? It has something to say about now that Jesus has come, how the priesthood works, because the priesthood doesn't work like it used to work. I don't give sacrifices anymore. That would be a part of my job description I wouldn't sign up for, right? I don't want to kill animals every week on your behalf. That's what, that's what they used to do for the people. Now, listen to what 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says about you. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning and you believe in God, this is a verse that characterizes your identity in God. By faith, not because you deserve it, but because it is true. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen royce, a race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you hear it? So Zacharias was a priest. Now that Jesus has done the work that Jesus needed to do in obliterating the whole sacrificial system because he became the sacrifice. The Bible teaches that, that the life of a, of a being is in his blood. And if you are, are a depraved sinner, you need to die on behalf of that sin. And instead of you dying, Jesus took that death. His blood was shed for you. His life was shed for you that you would have eternal life. And if you believe on that in faith, you are part of the royal priesthood. You, you, you are no less of a person than any other pastor or any other person. You're part of the great family of God. You've been adopted into this radical relationship that you would become a proclaimer of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have the power to proclaim the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ because you, you have been forgiven. And so this was who he was. So these, these things that are true of Zechariah and Elizabeth must be true of us. We are righteous before God because of our faith, but I want you to see the number one thing that's in the list here of how they prepared for Christmas and how we can prepare for Christmas as well. They lived in verse 6. Notice, notice in the text, they lived in verse 6 in service to the Lord. Now, <clears throat> part of my background, and, and sometimes, you know, People have views on what part of the denomination you're part of and, and all those different things, and I've gone through my journey, but I was trained, uh, most, almost, almost all of my training was done at a Calvary Chapel in Southern California. Great experience. I got opportunities there that no young man should have ever been given. Um, and, uh, and, and God used uh, my youthfulness and, and my zeal and, and the men in my life at that time to help train me to be the best pastor that I possibly can be. And we talked about leadership all the time. One of the things I tell people is, is that my experience at Calvary Chapel taught me how to lead well. Uh, and, and I gotta be careful with that because those who are following me are the ones who really should decide whether I'm leading well or not. But when we talked about leadership, we never talked about leadership uh, as an isolated term or an isolated part of our, our vocabulary. We never said, leaders do this, leaders do this, leaders do this. That's not how we communicated. We always attached the word leadership with another very particular word. You know what that word was? Servant leadership. And so it was never you lead, it was always you serve when you lead. Because when you lead in the church, it's upside down kingdom principle kind of stuff. To have real impact in the church, and I will also argue within the culture, you must become a servant of that culture, not an authoritarian of that culture. So I remember when the whole Prop 8 thing happened. You remember that? Oh, we get controversial here. And I remember I personally struggled in the way in which the church by and large communicated in regards to Prop 8. And I see some of you confused. What's Prop 8? That's when, when we were deciding as a state whether we were going to adopt same-sex marriage or not. Well, we adopt it as an actual, uh, legitimized marriage. Now, I don't want to get into that debate this morning, but what I want you to know is I wrestled as a fellow participant of Christianity in how we communicated about those in Prop 8. In many ways, we dehumanized the individual. And I remember I, I had shared with a brother in our church, I said, you shouldn't speak the way that you're speaking until you go down to the tenderloin and you go down into San Francisco and you wash 
someone's feet that's completely opposed to your biblical views. Do you understand what I'm saying? Some of you don't like it. What Zacharias teaches us, what Jesus teaches us is, if you want to really change the culture, and we do, don't we? We want to see the culture more loving, more forgiving, more gracious, less outraged, less angry, less hate-filled. Then you've got to wash feet. You've got to go into those areas. You've got to rub up against those sinners, and you've got to let them know that Jesus loves them in spite of them. You've got to know that you've got to let them know that, yeah, we've all got sin. You know, we all got sin. And, and one sin isn't particularly darker than another. The Bible says all sin leads to damnation. And, and so we should relate to what it is to be alienated from God, to be far from God. And it, should be, it be, should be something that moves us with compassion to give people the love of God who don't know God. See, praise God for men like Zachariah and Elizabeth, who, who, men and women who faithfully serve Jesus day in and day out because they know that at the end of the day, God is good enough and God will use us in spite of us to bring people into the kingdom of God. Praise God for that. You know, in our church, we have some faithful people who are servant leaders, who lead in obscurity. I mentioned Christy Rogelstad in the first service who, who faithfully, week in, week out, makes, uh, makes sure that, that our nursery is completely staffed. Th- this last uh, uh, Thursday and Friday, um, Aaron Lind and, and Linda Lynch and several other volunteers made Night of Bethlehem amazing last week. I don't know if you had a chance to come and see what it looked like in here, but it was amazing. I put a thing on social media of it, and all my friends from Southern California and across uh, the nation were like, we want to come. We want to see that this, look, this looks amazing. Praise God that, that, that there are people who, who, even when they don't feel like serving God, still serve God in regards to servant leadership. Praise God that men and women, young people, old people who, who step up and say, God's worth it, the kingdom's worth it, the church is worth it, I'm going to give my time, I'm going to volunteer my energy, my possessions, my talents to see the kingdom of God grow beyond our own capacity if we did it alone. Praise God for that, Amen. I want to encourage you to, to, to step up your game in that regard. You know, I said this in the first service. I might as well say it in the second service. I, I, I preach uh, most weekends at Sierra Bible Church, and, and there are weekends. I, I know this might come as a blow for some of you. There are Sundays I don't want to be here. I wake up in the morning every now and then and go, yeah, don't want to go to church today. My wife looks at me and goes, <laughs> you have to. And so I, I, I come, and, and, and no matter how I feel, no matter what's going on in my life, I'm going to be faithful to the text, to the best of my ability, faithful to preaching the goodness of God and the glory of his grace and the mystery of his forgiveness that he gives to us. And, and I will tell you that at the end of the day, it's worth it. And sometimes, sometimes I have those Sundays just like I think Zachariah had. I, one of the reasons he's, he's faithful and he's in, in service to the Lord is because Zechariah was remembering the 400-year-old promise. You think it's hard for me to get up? Imagine what it was like for Zechariah. They haven't heard from God in 400 years. What's it like for you when you haven't heard from God? Do you respond emotionally? You know, I mean, there are people who are watching on Facebook Live right now. They're not at church today because they just didn't want to get out of their pajamas. And I would invite you to get out of your pajamas. Come. <laughs> Come hear the goodness of God in person. Rub shoulders with people. And, and, and at the end of the day, you've got to fight against that. And you've got to remember the promises of God. You have to go back to what Scripture teaches and remember. And remember, remember. You know what I do? And it works. It just takes time. I have these moments, man. I do. I have these weeks where, where I feel like, man, I'm not having a hard time hearing from God. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not seeing something in the text that just comes out at me that, that, that I have to preach or that's in my bones. I don't always feel passionate. I don't always feel a, 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 just a lot of exuberance. And sometimes I feel tired. And you know what I'll do? I'll just I'll start reading the Word, reading something about the Word. I'll start praying. And eventually what happens is God finally gets to me. You know, I know sometimes in some Christian circles, some worship songs that are repetitive uh, get a bad rap. 
But you know, this morning, the, the boys uh, did a wonderful job, and they took a moment to sing, he, he came to save us. And we repeated it. And I, I was in here this, this morning, and, and they were singing it, and I started to feel the love of God, and I realized that, that sometimes you need to sing something over and over again because your skull is that thick. I could just feel, he came to save us. He came to save us. He came to save us. You just keep singing, and eventually it gets into the brain, down to the heart, and you go, yeah, he came to save me. Oh, my gosh. You know what I'm saying? And sometimes you have to come to church and place yourself in the seat week after week because you've got to hear the gospel message over and over and over and over and over again. Uh, Every church that's a good, healthy church not only opens up their Bible when they teach and preach, but they talk about the gospel of grace every week because you need it to be saved and you need it to stay saved. Oh, come on. It's necessary. In fact, it, when, you, when you are part of a church that opens up the Bible week in and week out, when you finally go visit a church that doesn't do it, it feels weird. In fact, that night of Bethlehem, I had one of our regular tenders tell me that they've been traveling quite a bit. They've been stopping by and seeing several different churches, and they said, you know, it, it has become apparent when we're in these churches. They don't open up the Bible, and it's like the, the way we were describing it, it's like a bad back massage. Okay, you can stop touching me now. I got to leave. And when you've had a good, steady diet of the word and a good, steady diet of the gospel, then, then you become alive. And it, we need it. And I, I personally, <laughs> you know, I, I get paid to be here, to sort of. And I say that because I, there, is, there is not enough money in the world that keeps a pastor in the ministry. If they're doing it well, I'm, I'm, I'm being honest with you. If, if you look, I was just reading a book called uh, Leadership Pain, and it says that <laughs> pastors are respected uh, and a list of respect from top whatever to bottom. We're, we're respected just above used car salesmen. Man, thank you, Jesus. That's awesome. I'm right up there with the car dealer, right? Now, you may not feel that way about me, but by and large... Uh, that's, that's the case. In addition to that, the suicide rate amongst pastors is sky high. It's a dangerous profession. So, so even though I'm here and I'm standing before you and I get a paycheck, I don't stay here because of the paycheck. I stay here because of the goodness of Jesus. And I have to mention that because when I say what I'm about to say next, I don't want you to think I'm saying it because I get a paycheck. You need to be here every week. You need to be here week in and week out, hearing the gospel, rubbing up against each other, worshiping Jesus, being reminded of the goodness of God, knowing that he's bigger than your depression, he's bigger than your parenting, he's bigger than than your financial problem, he's bigger than all of these things. And and Zechariah, at the end of the day, I believe he and his wife were able to serve in the temple day in and day out because they remembered the promises of God all the way back in Malachi. Because the prophecy was there. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Behold, I'll send a messenger. He'll prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. I mean, oh my goodness, do you see it? This is, again, another reason to believe Christianity. 400 years earlier, Malachi says that God will show up suddenly in his temple, and a messenger will come based off of that message for the Messiah. And now here is Malachi seeking God. Now, now this is a big deal because of the pointedness and the objectivity of Luke. We miss it. Zechariah gets to go serve in the temple. So basically what is happening here is, is he's been in his local service, and, and every now and then uh, the priest in the local service would go to Jerusalem to the big temple, the big mega church, and they would get to serve there once or twice a year. Out of thousands of individuals, a lot would be cast, and that lot would, would be given, the priest would be given the, the sweet opportunity to enter into the temple. And as he would come into the temple... He would come right up against where the Holy of Holies is. There'd be a curtain there, a veil. Inside that veil across the way is the presence of God. Just outside of that is where the incense is. And the incense would be lit or or it would be uh, continually lit, ensured it would stay lit uh, on several occasions. And he would go in and he'd make sure that the incense is lit and that incense represented the prayers of people. It, It represented the confession of people. It represented the repentance of the people. 
all towards the coming Messiah. The incidents all pointed towards the Messiah coming. And so Zechariah, not only is this a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, many priests never got to have this opportunity. And so imagine now Zechariah is like, what? This is like the epitome. Like, you know, this is, this is, this is big pastor stuff. I could just speak at a conference. It'd be kind of like one of those things. Oh, my gosh. I get to go light the incense. And, and he'd be excited about it. He, he would be impassioned about it. He's given his life to service. He gets to be right up next to the presence of God. But then he'd also be scared because, because if you did anything wrong, God killed you. And you might think that is a bad thing, but the reality is because God was perfect and holy and amazing and, and unapproachable. If any decay or death came about it, he would just vaporize it. And so to come into the temple, you had to do it. You had to, man, this is a privilege, but I got to do this fast, and I got to do it well. It's like, it's like a bomb squad guy, right? Do it quick. Do it right, lest you die. And there'd be trepidation. Now imagine he comes in. He's lighting the incense. Imagine that guy with the bomb. Careful. And then all of a sudden, hey, there's the angel. What you doing? And the text tells us, he goes, who are you? <laughs> what are you doing here? And, the, and then the angel says, your prayers have been heard, which gives us another point of why and how we prepare for Christmas. We should be praying perpetually as Zachariah was praying. He'd been praying for his wife. He'd been praying for a child. He's probably been praying for the Messiah. And now the angel has come, and, and he's heard his prayer. Uh, in regards to prayer, Keller, Keller says prayer is like this. Prayer gives us relief from the melancholy burden of self-absorption. I mean, really, I could just stop the text there. Because this is a need that we have. We are self-absorbed self-worried, self-everything. And Keller says part of the definition of prayer, the reality of prayer is when you pray to God, you're relieved from self-absorption and the burden of self. Prayer is the only entryway, he says, into genuine self-knowledge. It is also the main way we experience deep change, the reordering of our loves. Prayer is how God gives us so many of the unimaginable things he has for us. Indeed, prayer makes it safe for God to give us many of the things we most desire. It is the way we know God. The way we finally treat God as God. Prayer is simply the key to everything we need to do and be in life. So he's in the tradition here, okay? Zachariah's in the tradition of things. He's finding the beauty in tradition. He's lighting the incense. All of this is tradition. There, there is a beauty to tradition and liturgy. We don't emphasize it so much here in, in our church. Uh, but we do have certain traditions. We have some liturgy. I say every church has liturgy, some more than others. But there's beauty in tradition as long as you know why you're doing the traditional thing and what you're doing. So we tell our kids when we decorate the tree, we're decorating a tree not because we're putting presents under it, but because the light of the world hung on a tree on our behalf. And we try to find all the entryways into the gospel story for our children during Christmas time, he's in that tradition and he's been praying. And now the angel of the Lord has appeared. Gabriel is in this room with him and he's telling him, your prayers are answered. Now I want you to see another thing that is important for preparation because Zechariah in verses 18 through 20 does something I think is unimaginable, but probably something many of us would fall into as a mistake. Right? He is in the temple. He knows the prophecy of Malachi that the Lord will suddenly appear in the temple. The promised Messiah is going to come. John the Baptist is going to prepare the way for that. He's learning all of these things. He's been told by an angel himself, and then he has the gall to say to the, to the angel, how do I know these things are going to be true? You see it down there? Verse 18, how will I know this is going to happen? I feel again, it's like the, he came to save us. He came to save us. There's an angel in the room. What more signs do you need? And the angel actually says to him, he says to him, I just, I like sometimes talk like a gangster. Like, uh, hello. <laughs> That's not how a gangster talks. Um, <laughs> I stand in the presence of God. That's what Gabriel says. I actually stand in the presence of God, guy. And because that you have doubted the word of God, you will be mute. You will not be able to speak for nine months until the baby's born. 
The male can't speak for nine months. And all the wives are like, my husband doesn't talk for nine months at a time. I'd, why? Where's the punishment? Um, but this is what happens. Because of his lack of faith, and, and I think the reminder here for us, uh, my friends, is that God's word is enough. Amen? God's word is enough. God's promises are enough. He, he, he promises to save you. He, he promises to, to lead you on paths of righteousness. He promises to keep you. He promises that, that not only did he save you, that he's going to keep you saved. He, he promises all of these things, and his promises are enough, and we lean into those promises. The ultimate promise that's given here is the promise that we have a Savior. You know, this great promise that's given, by the way, through John the Baptist, who later will be born, and John will point and prepares the people to receive the great Messiah that is Jesus Christ. And as John paints this picture and he's pointing us to Jesus, he, he's letting us know that, the, again, the, the, the incarnation is a part of Jesus' passion and affection for us. Jesus loved us enough. God loved us enough to come after us. I mean, so often as Christians, it's funny because when you, when you preach, you, you know, you're always thinking about words and verbiage and language and different ways to say things and ways that are more impactful. And, you know, as Christians, you know what we pray oftentimes when we pray? Lord, I want to be in your presence. Or we'll even say as a, a, a Bible study or as a group, we've got to get in the presence of God, man. Have you been in God's presence lately? And... uh What's interesting when you think about the incarnation and the birth of Jesus, the promised Messiah that's been given us, it isn't so much about us getting into the presence of Jesus as much as it is Jesus getting into the presence of man. You see, Jesus has always instigated and initiated coming into our presence to come and get us. You know, and the reason sometimes verbiage and language is so important is because when we believe in grace. If I say, I've got to get into the presence of God, the onus is on you. The pressure is on you. What must you do? What must be done to earn your salvation? But when we realize, no, 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 Jesus has already rubbed into our presence. Jesus has landed. God has landed. It's another reason to believe in Christianity. You know what needs to be done? You need to believe. It's not so much, I've got to get into the presence of God, as it is, God, give me the faith to see I'm already in your presence. You're already in my presence. You're already here. Most people speak of getting into God's presence. We must speak of God becoming into our presence. And, and the reality is, is that when he, when he comes into the presence, as, as Jordan read that piece of Scripture from John, when Jesus came into our presence, he became flesh and he dwelt amongst us. You know why that word flesh is so important? It's fleshy. It's soft. It's killable. You see, Jesus came in a vulnerable way. And some might say, you know what, I want to, Keller kind of says like this, says, you know, I want a watertight argument. I, I want to know, give me the reason why I should believe. Give me a good apologetic. Tell me why I should believe what I should believe. What if there's no argument to be given? What if it's a person? It's a watertight person, he says. There's a story way back in the day in 1964. There was an incident of a 28-year-old female. And she was assaulted outside downstairs out of her apartment building. And she cried out while she was being stabbed. She cried out for help. And the lights went on. People could see outside of their apartments. They could see outside of their apartments. Down, they could see this woman being stabbed. This is a true story. And no one came down to help. And when they were asked why, and when research came out to figure out why no one came down, the reason was because everyone was too afraid to come down because they knew that if they came down, they too would be in harm's way, and they too quite possibly would be killed and murdered. I mention that story as an illustration to understand that, see, Jesus heard the cries of his people, the depravity of our sin and the brokenness of our nature. And instead of sitting in the heavens aloft and high and not doing anything about it. He came down. He made himself vulnerable. And he died the death that we deserve. And he became vulnerable. And he took what the punishment that we, 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 we have rightly placed upon ourselves. See, the promise of Christmas is understanding that we prepare for it indeed. We prepare for, for it for through, through prayer and, and through service like Zachariah did. But we, we also uh, embody it in, in and realize in faith that, that that presence of God is with us, and we worship the one and only true Jesus who's been made vulnerable on our behalf. 
That flesh part allows us to understand that Jesus knows every single thing that you've ever been through. You know, Christmas time, a lot of debt happens. Are you broke? Anyone broke? So was Jesus. He didn't have a place to lay his head. Have you cried out to God in prayer and has he not answered you? So was Jesus. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, take this cup from me. Would you take it from me, Lord? And yet he still had to drink that cup of wrath. Do you feel like God has forsaken you? Do you feel like he's left you and he's abandoned you? So does Jesus. As he hung on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Whatever you're going through in brokenness this Christmas season, you can go to Jesus with confidence that he understands what you're going through. This is why the word becoming flesh is so important. Because otherwise you don't have a God that gets you. There's no other religion like it. Only Christianity gives us a suffering Savior that we can go to that understands every bit of our negative and positive emotion because Jesus had them all. He was a prophet who, who weeped and he mourned, but he also had great joy and he smiled and he rejoiced and he ate and he sang with his people. And this Christmas, may we come to the manger seeing that Jesus understands everything that we've gone through. May I encourage you, go to the Lord in prayer. Be a person of prayer. Be a person of service. And enjoy your relationship with Jesus this, Christ, this Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, we <clears throat> thank you that you have come on our behalf to do what we could not ever do on our own. None of us here has the ability to be perfect. None of us here can live a good enough life to have right standing before you. And yet, Lord, you, you came. You landed on earth, Lord, that we would know that you understand us and that you ran after us, that you desire to have a relationship with us. I pray that, Lord, you would, you would, Lord, just as, as I think Zachariah prayed, and I want to pray as well, Lord, that you would bring revival in our church, revival in our community. Lord, I do believe that you want to see more people in our area come to know you, and I pray that you would use us in this season to do it. Whether it's inviting a friend to Christmas Eve or bringing someone to Bible study, or if it's praying with them or sharing with them the good news of who you are at work or, or out and about. I pray, Lord, you would use us for salvation to those who are in the darkness that are desperate for the light. I also pray, Lord, for those who are part of our church week in and week out, Lord, the, the faces that, that I get to see every week who are here. I just want to say thank you for them. And I pray for them, Lord, that they would dive deeper into their relationship with you, would you solidify their feet on the word? Would you give them an understanding of scripture that they've never had before? Would you give them a heart of service that they haven't possessed? Would you bless them and encourage them, Lord, if they're hurting, if they're suffering, if they're struggling, if they're down? Would you lift their spirits, Lord, because of your goodness and because of your grace? Would you be alive to them in this season? And all of these things, Lord, I ask in faith because your word is enough. You are enough for us. And we thank you for it as you do that work, as you build your church and your people. In Jesus' name, amen.